You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. So if you live in Elmira, or if you have been in Elmira on a Saturday, you'll know that uh, Saturday at noon, I think it is, there's like a horn that goes off. It's an alarm or something like that. Have you heard that before? Blows at noon for like, I don't know, 10 seconds or something. It's a good shot. And um, it's there, I think, I've only lived in the town for like seven or eight years, but I think it's there to like warn us that something bad is happening, you know? Like if some sort of thing is going on, maybe at the chemical plant or if something bad is happening, the horn is blowing and we're all supposed to do something. I don't know if you know what to do. I I didn't actually look it up, but we're supposed to do something. So this week... I forget now if it was Tuesday or Wednesday, if you were in town, it was like mid-morning, it went off. It was like 10 o'clock or something, it went off. And it didn't just do the 10-second thing, it kind of like kept going and going. The horn was blowing, and so I was, I was like, I was in my office, I was kind of waiting for it to stop, and I was like, this is not Saturday, what's going on? It just kept going and going. So then I get up and I look out the window, I'm looking maybe for some smoke or, you know, what's going on? Still couldn't see anything, so then I did what I often do. I texted Liz, you know? I was like, what am I supposed to do? There's a siren, you know, going off here. I didn't read the fine print. Am I supposed to go to the lower belly of the church? What am I supposed to do? I still don't know what I was supposed to do. Um, if, If you know, you can tell me after, but eventually it stopped, okay? And everything went on. I did find out later that it was just a test or something that I was supposed to have a phone call for. Readiness to do something. This is what Paul is getting at in the second chapter of Ephesians here. He has just explained in verses 1 through 10 the most magnificent message of the gospel. And if you weren't here last week, you can listen to the sermon again or just go back and read verses 1 through 10 this week. It is Paul's clear and simple and short description of the gospel. And he says, you have been saved by grace. There is nothing you can do. It is the grace of God that has saved you. And Paul says, now, as a receiver of the grace, he says, God is expecting a return on his investment. So grace is not just something that we get and we kind of hold on to and we just look at it. Paul's saying grace demands a response. Now that doesn't mean we're earning anything. We're not doing anything to get it. We couldn't do anything to get it. It's a a free gift from God. But now the response is that grace is so magnificent, our lives will be different. So Paul now in our text this morning, in Ephesians chapter 2, is going to teach us what it looks like for God's people to be brought together and a part of one family, unified by the grace of Jesus Christ for a purpose, for the glory of God. And Paul is going to remind us, or or maybe it's new for us or make fresh for us this morning, that we can live as God's people together in peace because Jesus has made peace. So the reason that we can live together in peace is because Jesus has made peace for us. 
And that's what Paul is going to say now here is one of the ways that we actually respond in grace to each other because of the grace that we have been given. So, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul begins with the separation that exists within this body of believers. So look at verse 11. He says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So to understand what Paul is getting at here, we need to dip our toes back into the Old Testament narrative. And what God was doing, starting all the way back in Genesis, in his creation of a new nation of Israel. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, we see the story of Abram and Sarai. And this is where God begins something new. God has a new plan that he's going to actually start to put into motion. So in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read some verses here. This is what it says. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes here to Abram and to Sarah and says, I'm doing something new. Through you, I'm going to start a nation. And they're childless at this time. So if you're familiar with the story, you'll know they're thinking this is impossible. But God says, I am making a promise with you that through you, a nation will come. And this nation is going to be unique because he says that those who are against you will be against the nation, curses will come. And those who will be for you, blessings will come. But here's the kind of the, the capstone summary. At the end there, verse 3 says, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a statement. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can, we can't even imagine if someone would say to us, All the people on your street are going to be blessed by your presence. We'd be like, eh, maybe. Or how about this? All the people in your town, whatever town, all those people will be blessed by your presence. At that point, all of us would be like, yeah, it's not going to happen, you know. All the families of the earth will be blessed, Abram and Sarai, because of this great nation that is going to come from you. It's a vision that is grand. It's a vision that is far-reaching. And this was the vision that, that God had in mind as he puts into motion this vision of a, a nation of Israel who would go out and be his, his representatives. So the story goes on through Genesis, different generations of people, Jacob, Esau, Israel, Joseph, till you get to Exodus. And almost the vision of it is it's a little bit murky, because now it's one big nation, but it's a nation that is in bondage and in slavery. And if you're reading Genesis, you're thinking, how is this 
you know, this band of enslaved families going to be a blessing to the world? Well, God miraculously saves them from their slavery, releases them from Egypt. They go out on their way to the promised land. And one of the first things that God does then is he gives them the law and he casts anew this vision for them. He retells this vision for them. And look what it says in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, at the giving of the law here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Okay, are you hearing this vision being recast? You're going to be a special possession of mine among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. Here's this global vision that God has again. All the earth is mine. Israel, you're going to be this like choice possession of mine. And you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, Moses. Tell them this, that they are a unique possession of mine that will be on display for the nations to see. And this promise from Genesis chapter 12 and from Exodus 19 is, is the foundation for the nation of Israel. But as we go through the Old Testament, and as you follow the narrative along, you see that it's just a constant up and down, losing vision, clarity of vision, but the overwhelming majority of it, the overwhelming majority of the Old Testament before, you know, as we're coming up to the Gospels is rebellion against God and his vision. Just totally turning away from what God wants. Never living up to the full potential of what God has wanted. And so this struggle then is on plain display between the Jewish nation and the Gentiles nation, Gentile nations by the time we get to the Gospels, so that there's no longer a, a vision for blessing the families. What you actually end up having is a Jewish nation that is in hostility to its neighbors, the Gentile nations. No desire at all for any kind of blessing to happen. Total separation. And the result then here that Paul is saying in Ephesians is that there is a separating. There's a separation that exists between these two groups. And the result is, if you see at the uh, verse 12, is that they are having no hope and that they are without God. So in verse 11, he says, You, the Gentiles, the result then of you being separated from the nation of Israel is that you have no understanding of God you're separated from him, and you have no understanding of the Jewish customs, and there's no connection. And so you are actually living, he says, as people without hope. Now, in our day and age, we are not so much thinking about the divide between Jew and Gentile. You know, I'm not sure if there's any Jewish people in the audience here. It's possible. But we're not thinking that on a day-to-day -day basis. But we are still living with these same consequences. People with no God at least not Jehovah God, and with no hope in their lives. 
And so we live in a society where people are looking for hope in some sort of place. Your neighbors, in some way, are looking for meaning, significance, hope in some way again. It might be a hobby. It might be their work. It might be their kids. It might be the cottage they have. Whatever it is, something that they're holding on to that's going to give them hope at least for a little while. Rebecca Solnit, if I'm saying her last name right, is a writer for The Guardian, a UK paper. And she wrote this article last fall about just the the state of the world, it's in, a, it's in a disastrous position, you know. She was writing about the, the global warming and the wars that are going on and the economy, everything's terrible. But then she writes this, the livable world of 27, 2072 is almost unimaginable. But the way that I imagine it is possible is by thinking how unimaginable the 2022 we are all in now would have been in 1972, and how little it resembles either most science fiction or prediction. We see no farther than the little halo of our lanterns, but we can travel all night by that light. You get what she's saying? She's saying the world is a mess, okay? The world is chaotic. I don't know what to put my hope in, but she says, I got one little thing I can kind of hang my hat on, and it's that, like, time keeps going, essentially. Time keeps going. People have thought about 20 years in the future, and it's chaotic, and they're afraid, but we've got this little lantern of, like, history moving forward in chunks, and that's the hope that I'm going to hang my hat on. People are longing for hope in some way. And what we've been learning from Ephesians is that the gospel gives us hope. The hope that we have as believers is not just in the passing of time. It's not just in our savings. It's not in like our lives working perfectly. Our hope is in the gospel. And Paul writes in Romans, his more expanded version, in Romans 5, he says, hope does not, is not put to shame. Our hope is not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. So Paul is saying what we want to think about here is the hope that we have, the thing that actually brings us together. So there's separation. He addresses it here. He says, you guys are separated, but there's actually something that brings us together as believers. So listen now in verse 13 as as Paul begins to talk about this unification, what happens here. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Paul is saying there's been a unification. Two groups have been brought together. And Jesus experienced this separation 
in his own time. I, I put a map up here of the temple. And this would be around when Jesus was around. And Jesus would have walked through here with his disciples. They would have come and do, done sacrifices here. This is the temple and the outer, the greater area there is the place where the Gentiles could come. And maybe you're familiar with the story where Jesus actually comes into that space and all he finds is markets. People selling their, their wares and, and it's, it's totally crowded. And what does Jesus do? In Mark it says this, that he was teaching them and saying to them, it is, is it not written... My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus comes in and he sees that this whole area, or at least a, a large section of it, is just crowded and busy. The, the vision of Israel has been lost. There's no space for the Gentile nations to even come near, to even visually see what is going on in this temple. What's going on in, in that section where the smoke is rising up? They're not even thinking about that. And the Jewish nation isn't even seeing that as an opportunity. And archaeologists uh, discovered a sign. You can see the, where the letter D is. That's, that's a wall, actually, that was meant to keep the Gentiles out of the intersections. Okay? So you could, the Jewish men and women could walk into the section on the right... And then in section C is where the priests would be and where they would do all their sacrificing and burning. And D is a wall that's there. And archaeologists in the late 1800s uh, found a stone that actually was a stone that would have been built into that wall. And I think I have a picture of it here. This is the very stone, one of the stones that would have been kind of put in that wall. And here's what it's saying on there. That inscription says, No stranger is to enter within this walled area, the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. So it's a warning sign saying, This is a wall. If you're a Gentile, do not step over because that may be the end. That'll be your last day, okay, essentially. This may be the very wall Maybe even the very inscription that Paul was thinking about when he wrote what this unification actually did. This barrier that physically existed, that had a sign and a placard that said, do not enter because you are not welcome to enter into this space. Paul is saying now that there has been a disruption. This dividing wall of hostility no longer exists. So let me ask you, do we still live in a world with divided walls? Absolutely. We live in a, we, we live in a world, a day and age now, where, you know, for real, uh, countries and places are building fences and walls. It, this is a new reality that we live in, where this is a big deal, where walls and fences are being built everywhere to keep people separated for all kinds of reasons. We live in a world where there's over 30 wars and, and military conflicts going on around the planet. So conflict and, and division exist 
everywhere around the world. Thankfully, here in Canada, we, we do not have a war of any kind. But we all know there is all kinds of division and disunity within our society. There are all kinds of dividing walls. Groups that cannot intermingle, who will not intermingle. Separation, separation, separation. And Paul here is saying, Jesus has actually done something now with God's people. He has, what is, Paul says that he has killed the hostility. Jesus has killed the hostility. He has broken down the wall so that now God's people can come together and be united as one people, where hostility is actually broken down because of the work that Jesus has done. So there's, it's not by accident that Paul is using all this temple imagery and all this symbolism from the temple because he is trying to get across what Jesus has done, what Jesus has done through his own death, through his own uh, atonement, as the scriptures say. And this is what he's done. Uh, author Paulson, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but he writes this. He says, The Lord's plan for dealing with sin is shocking in its unexpectedness. It will not involve a force or some military campaign champion imposing righteousness on the people. Rather, the Lord's solution to sin is for his servant to take human sin on himself and to offer himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of others. Atonement. Some theologians use the, they kind of break it up and say, at one mint, where God is actually, through his death, through his own sacrifice, is making two different people into a oneness, into one people, which is his church. And the way that Jesus would do it would be his own self, his own sacrifice. So, there's been a separation which existed, and now there's been unification. And so Paul says, now, now together, as, as one people, you are different. You exist differently then in the world that you live in because God has brought you together. He has united you into one people. If you have been listening to any of the Bible Project videos on Ephesians, um, you'll see that Tim Mackey, who's the, the, one of the creators of these videos, he says all the time that Paul is using the word you, he's using the word you plural as the pronoun. So he's talking about you as in the group, you as believers. So Tim Mackey says we'd be better off to actually use like the, the southern word y'all. You know, it should be y'all that you're talking about. So when he actually does the reading in his videos, every time there's a you, he says y'all, okay? Because he's trying to get across this idea of it's the group. It's you all. We often tend to make salvation about me. It's a, and it's a good question to ask. Am I saved? Has Jesus saved me? Am I going to take communion? Like, it's very personal. But especially here in Ephesians, Paul is talking to us. Y'all, because what God is doing is actually saving a people. God is saving a people for, for his own name, for his glory, and to do his works, which we talked about last week. And so when we think of y'all, 
Paul then says, you have been recreated as a new group. And he has three ways of describing it. So listen in verse 19 here. So then, so the result then now of Jesus' atoning work, his blood spilt for us, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with, saint, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, the God, for God by the Spirit. So Paul says, here's what's happened. You have been brought together. And now you are a new thing. You're a new thing together. He gives three descriptions of what we are. And we're going to just quickly look at them before we finish up here. Three realities for y'all. And the first one is this, that we are, we are citizens together. It's the name that we chose for the name of our church, okay? Because God has brought us together. And now, like any citizenship, it comes with responsibilities and also privileges. So just like when you, uh, if you've ever left Canada and you've enjoyed your vacation and you've gone to another place, it's always good to come back. Because you're like, this is my place. This is my country. And you walk in and you used to be able to like talk to someone and they'd say, you know, welcome back to Canada, Mr. Duick. Or I don't know if that happens anymore. It's all kind of self-checkout and you just come in. But it felt, it used to feel good, still feels good, to come back because you're a citizen and this is your place and these are your people and you are brought together by a common vision. And Paul says, you are now citizens Citizens together with God's people. So we can imagine it here in the context of Canada, but try to imagine citizenship. He is reigning and ruling with perfect justice, with perfect love. That is the place that we are citizens of. We get a taste of it here on earth because we have the Holy Spirit within us. But one day when Christ comes and returns and totally reigns and rules on this earth and in heaven, we will be in his presence as citizens of his kingdom. And Paul says, that's part of your identity. That's part of your collective identity. Secondly, so we're citizens, but secondly, we are also members of God's family. We are members of God's family, meaning that God is our father, and we've, we've talked about that a lot, that God is our Father, that we have a relationship with Him, that He knows us, that He cares for us, and that He loves us. I was in uh, Donuts in Delhi, uh, just a local restaurant here this week for breakfast, and I was there a little bit early, and as I was sitting there uh, with my coffee, there was uh, a dad over there with a, with a son, just like, I don't know, like four or five years old, old enough to talk, and so just... The, the boy was just jabbering away, you know, and I, you know how like boys are at that age. So he was like, dad, is that guy a construction worker? You know, it's like questions. And he was like, dad, is this railing made out of metal? Dad, is this made out of wood? Like one question after the other. And then like the next, no, like no pause in there. Okay. One question after the other. The, the boy looked over and was like, dad, I love you. And then the dad just paused and he was like, I love you too, buddy family. 
members of a family, God's love towards his children. But not only our connection to God, as wonderful as that is, as, as amazing as that is, we're also members of a family together. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Meaning, like most brothers and sisters, sometimes we punch each other, sometimes we love each other, sometimes we don't get along, but together we're actually looking to Dad. We're looking to God, our Father. And our, our unity is around Him. And so Paul says, because he's going to go into more detailed teaching in about chapter 4, but he says, this is part of your identity, brothers and sisters together, part of God's family. So we are citizens, we are members of God's family, and the last picture that he gives us is that we are a growing temple. So he says, Christ is the cornerstone. Off of him, everything is built. And Paul says, you are like a temple that is being built. And notice the language here is it's a temple that seems to be unfinished. That God is just continuing to add to it. It's growing and growing and growing. The message of the gospel is going out. Brothers and sisters are being saved and they are being added to the temple of God. So our church is never complete. Citizens Church is never finished. There is no missional family that is like just statically the same. There always should be room for more. There always should be room for mixing up and changing it up because God is continuing to add to his church. New people will walk in the door. New people will be saved. They will be added to his local church because God is building his temple. We are citizens. We are members of his family. And we are a growing temple. God has brought us together. And the, the only thing, let me close with this, the only thing that, that Paul wants us to remember in terms of what holds us together, look at verse 22. He says, In Him you are being built together. In Him. Jesus is the only thing that holds us together. We may have different views on all kinds of stuff. We may have different views on whether we stay here or go there. The thing that we are called to, to hold us together, even as we work through all those practicalities, the thing that we come back to is Jesus holds us together. And when we stray from that, church, when we get away from that, that is when trouble comes down the road. When we step away from that, then we have stepped away from God's vision for his local body. And so together, we regularly gather so that we call ourselves back to worshiping Jesus. We call ourselves back to worshiping the God who died on the cross, rose again, and gave us new life. God has brought together a church by his own making. And just like the disciples, the disciples were fishermen, blue-collar fishermen, there were white-collar tax collectors. There were a couple of brothers who wanted power. They had Judas, who was a thief. God brought all these people together, and he says, I am making you into one new thing. Your new identity is found in Jesus. And the calling for us 
again this morning is to be a community of men and women who are bound by Jesus, united by him, and will now carry on the vision, reflecting the image of Christ to those we come in contact with in the week. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for unifying us in the gospel. Lord, we pray that this truth would come home to us again this week. Lord, strengthen it and make the foundations of the gospel strong. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.